Good evening and welcome. My name is Michael Willis. I'm one of the fellows here at the Middle East Centre at St Anthony's College at the University of Oxford. And it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to the sixth seminar this series in our series we've been running every Friday evening this term, in Hillary term, on the Arab uprisings at 10. And I'm very pleased to introduce this seminar that we are running jointly with the British Tunisian Society, which gives you an idea about the topic we'll be discussing this evening. But I'm very pleased that the, with the support of the British Tunisian Society that have really been crucial in putting this whole event together. And we're very grateful to the BTS and particularly grateful to the person who will be chairing very involved in the British Tunisian Society, somebody that is a good friend of the centre and somebody I'm sure many of you know very well, Professor Charles Tripp of SOAS, who will be introducing the seminar for this evening. Charles. Michael, thank you very much indeed. And thanks to St Anthony's for making it possible. I think what I should say first is something a bit about the British Tunisian Society itself, just to say that it was established or re-established in 2018 as a society meant to build on the friendship and understanding between Tunisia and the United Kingdom. So connecting people in both countries with a common interest and with knowledge about each other's histories, cultures, societies, and their politics. And of course, that's what the contribution will be this evening. So the panel this evening was intended or is intended to give us a chance to reflect on some of the achievements of the past 10 years since the revolution and the overthrow of Ben Ali in 2011, but also, of course, the unfinished business and the unrealized hopes that have marked Tunisia's trajectory since the revolutionary events of 2010-2011, because like all revolutions, it's a long-going process and some hopes have been disappointed, some have been fulfilled. And it's really to reflect upon that, which we have asked our very distinguished two speakers to help us through. And I just want to introduce the two speakers before handing over to them. I want to introduce first Dr. Hela Amar, who's a professor of law at the University of Tunis, but also a visual artist. And one could say that her two roles were vividly demonstrated in 2011. First of all, with her participation in the art project, Artocracy Inside Out, that used art to reclaim public spaces in Tunisia with the revolution. And secondly, with her membership of the commission set up by the Tunisian government in 2011 to look into the conditions of prisons across the country. Her striking artworks have been exhibited and form part of collections in Tunisia and internationally. And if all goes well, in the middle of May, you'll see some of them exhibited in a new exhibition coming on at the British Museum called Reflections, Contemporary Art from the Middle East and North Africa, when museums are allowed to reopen again. And our other speaker, equally distinguished in a different field, Professor Mohamed Keru, is Professor of Political Science at the University of Tunis, but also a member of the Beit al-Hikmah, the Tunisian Academy of Sciences, Arts and Letters, and a founding member of the Tunisian Observatory for Democratic Transition. He's published numerous articles and books, and most recently in 2018, L'Autre Révolution, The Other Revolution, and just appeared, I think, in Tunis, Gemna, L'Oasis de la Révolution, the uh, Gemna, the oasis of the revolution, which has just come out. So before I turn to Dr. Hela Amar first, I should say something about the format of the evening. Our speakers will each have about 10 to 12 minutes to give us some of their reflections. I might then lead off with a couple of questions and open the floor, as it were. You can see that I'm still 
in pre-Zoom mentality. I still think there's a flaw, but there isn't. To open the floor for all of you for more general questions and discussion that will be chaired by Dr. Michael Willis. So I'm happy to turn over the floor or the screen to Hella. Hella, please. Good evening. Thank you so much, Charles. I'm glad to be here with you today. Yes, actually, revolution has opened the door uh, to every possible. And indeed, we were able to do things and to explore fields we never could explore during Benavi's regime. So to talk about the achievements and the changes uh, that happened just after the revolution, I will take two examples. Actually, I will be speaking about two main projects that marked my career as an artist and that marked me also as a citizen. The first one is visiting prisons and testifying about human rights in Tunisia. A few weeks after the revolution, as you said, Charles, three national commissions were set up by the provisional government of this time. And I was appointed as a member of one of them, the Commission of Inquiry on the Abuses Committed During the Revolution. Our mission was basically to investigate all types of abuses, such as death and uh, bullet injuries, but also mutiny in prisons, and uh, to determine the political responsibilities. So actually, the, this commission was the first tool of the transitional justice in Tunisia. And during one year, we did, for example, as far as I'm concerned, I was in the sub-commission of prisons. And during a year, I visited prisons with three other members of this commission. And this was the first time ever that civilians entered prisons. Before that time, so during Ben Ali's regime, it was only the Red Cross that was able to visit prisons and their reports were confidential. So no one could know what was happening into prisons. Of course, we were aware that human rights were floating, of course, but no one could imagine how bad the conditions of detentions were. So after this, we were able for the first time to testify about the human rights violation in prisons. And one year after, so the report has been published. And in the same time, I was telling myself, I have to do something about this. I have to, to testify not only as a member, as a jurist, as a member of this commission, but also as a citizen who has lived something something huge, you know, talking with, uh, with inmates, visiting prisons, exploring a field that I would never imagine exploring before. So there is still a festival of art in public space in Tunisia called Dream City. And for this year, I chose to, um, to testify about what I lived into prison with, uh, with these commissions. And I showed the pictures I took during a year in prisons. And actually, I replenished the prison universe with the pictures and also testimonies of the prisoners. And it was 
It was really a great experience because of two things. First thing, it was the first time. And I think it will be the, the last one also because, um, because unfortunately no one is able to take picture into prisons. So I think there will be only those one I took uh, during uh, this, uh, this year. And the second reason, because, you know, prison in Tunisia, it was taboo. Like no one talked about prisons. We had only few testimony from the prisoners uh, under Bogiba, the um, la gauche tunisienne, en fait. So, uh, so we didn't know what, what was happening, what is still happening uh, there. So yes, 10 years after visiting prison, what has changed? I think the conditions of detention, hasn't they haven't changed that much even uh, if uh, some reforms have been undertaken. But still, you know, still more generally, many steps have been made in terms of uh, transitional justice, uh, rehabilitation of uh, victims and so on. But still, the process is not finished yet. The second example, the second project, was called Artocracy. Inside Out Project, initiated by French photographer uh, J.R. in March uh, 2011. In this project, we replaced the portrait of Ben Ali, which was everywhere, you know, every street, in every, everywhere in, uh, in all Tunisia. Uh, so we, we chose to replace uh, the portrait of Ben Ali by thousands of portraits of unknown Tunisians. Uh, the, some, the symbolic was strong, and we thought that it would be a beautiful homage to Tunisian people. Um, but the funniest thing was that we were expecting such reaction from, uh, from people in the street. We were passing the pictures, the portraits, and at the same time, even the people who helped us to pass the pictures were ripping them apart. It was completely unexpected, and also we faced very hostile and violent uh, reactions from, uh, from people in the street. Some of them were, were saying that we are unbelievers uh, because human representation and so portraits are forbidden in Islam. Uh, some of them would say also that the portraits, black and white portraits, are ugly, and instead we should have like colored uh, landscapes, uh, palm trees, sun, flowers, etc. Some of them also um, disagreed with putting strangers, portraits of strangers in their walls, their streets, their neighborhood, and instead we have, and they, they were saying, instead you, have, you should have uh, pasted the portraits of myself. I'm, I'm known, I'm well known in my, in my country or, or in, my, in my neighborhood, sorry, or in my street. Actually, as I said, you know, the reaction were completely unexpected and hard to understand. But if we look deeper into them, 
we can see what has changed since the, the fall of the regime. And uh, this also could explain what, what happened later and what we are still experiencing now. First of all, we heard the first, for the first time, the first voices of Salafism, or at least uh, of uh, conservative people who would put religion above all freedoms. Also, these reactions also shows how much people were and still are unfamiliar uh, with art in public space maybe also unfamiliar with the, the concept of public space, with the concept of living and uh, the doing together in a public space. And this is pretty normal, you know, after more than 20 years of dictatorship. In fact, everyone was appropriating this, uh, this public uh, space, a public space that uh, never could freely use before. Another thing is that um, I think the most important thing that all of them, all of us, even uh, as artists or as citizens, were uh, experimenting. We were experimenting a very new freedom of speech. Even if that seemed to me like one dictator at this time, uh, <laughs> one dictator has been, uh, uh, has been replaced by 11 million dictators. And uh, so that was, yeah, that was the feeling I had this time. And maybe sometimes, even now, you know, uh, with all the demonstrations across the country. So, uh, yes, if I want to summarize, I think I reached my time. I'd say that the, the main change uh, that has lasted is the freedom of speech. Today we have the right, but also the power to speak out, to contest and uh, to denounce. This is, of course, a huge achievement. But some would say that 10 years after the revolution, this is not enough. And we're still expecting more significant changes that would make Tunisia a real democratic country. Thank you. Hello. Thank you very much. Really interesting. And thank you so much also for keeping to your time schedule in a very good way and then giving us a lot of things to think about, which we'll come back to in the questions. But now I'd like to turn to Mohamed, Mohamed Keru, to give his reflections from a slightly different perspective, possibly, of the last 10 years. Good evening. I am very happy to take part to the webinar. Thank you very much to all um, organizers and participants. And uh, the question is, uh, where are we uh, today, 10 years after? Uh, while this is a simple question, the answer is not always obvious. From my point of view, there are at least three components of the um, historical process of revolution and political transition. First of all, the relationship between old and the new regime. Second, the building of democratic institutions. And third, social movements. Since the time devoted to the presentation is short, I would focus on the third issue, which is related to social movements. And during the debate, I will come back, if you want, to the two other uh, components. So concerning social um, movements, we could say that young people are still mobilized. 
as far as the objectives of the revolution, which are, as you know, work, freedom, and dignity, are not realized yet. They are demonstrating in the streets and public places, using social media, of course. Ten years after the revolution, young people um, feel frustrated for having waited so long without any achievements. Uh, so the revolutionary process is still continuing by following three paths or three main directions. First of all, the path, we could say the path of Jimna. Second, the path or the case, because they are cases, studies case, the case of El Kamur. And the third is urban demonstration. Let's begin with uh, Jemna. Uh, Jemna is a small village and uh, also an oasis located in the south of Tunisia, in the southwest of Tunisia. Their social actors are involved in a battle on the right of the land. And since 2011, they have occupied uh, an ancient colonial domain or farm, if you want, colonial farm, planted with palms and producing dates. This farm belongs to the national state, of course. The challenge then is between the legality, the national state legality, and the people democratic legitimacy. In 2011, some people of Jemna created a committee, a revolutionary committee. But one year later, in 2012, they transformed the committee in uh, an NGO, association or NGO. During 10 years, they are taking control of the domain and collectively self-managing the land and its resources to the benefit of the community of Jemna. Jemna's struggle for dignity and collective identity is probably, I do say probably, uh, so don't, don't take it for granted. It's just an hypothesis. Maybe it's the only success story of the Tunisian revolution. Second case is El Kamur. This pumping oil and gas station is located, as you know, in the extreme south of Asia, far from Tatawi, about 8 miles. In El Kamur, or around El Kamur, people have occupied the station and they formed a coordination committee representing eight localities of the governorate or the region of uh, Tatawin. They negotiated uh, with the government and reached an agreement which had not been implemented. The battle for sharing of wealth and social justice in El Kamur is, is organized through an informal structure, in an informal organization. It seems to me that it uh, turns out to be a counter-social movement because it's more concerned with blocking the production and opposing to the state than promoting a constructive social project like Jemna. Finally, the urban protests. The field of urban protests is both the poor district of Tunisian cities and the public places like uh, Bourguiba Avenue, Casbah, and 
the public place of the Bardo. In the poor district located in the periphery of the cities, protests are related to the logic of riot, having for major social actors out of school youth people. Meanwhile, the political actors in the public uh, places are young educated at high school and universities. They express through the revolutionary slogans, the rejection of the new political power perceived as conservative and corrupted. What is remarkable is the missing link between the two urban protest movements, which are also not strongly connected to civil society, mainly labor union. From there comes the weakness of social movement in Tunisia post-revolution. Thank you very much and welcome to your comments and remarks. Mohamed, thank you very much. I think it gives us a flavor of what we're going to meet in the book on Jemna that's coming out too. So uh, that's a good foretaste as well. I mean, I thought that before I open the, the floor, but the screen, as it were, to discussion for everyone, I might put a couple of questions to both of you to see if you how you respond to it, because it seemed that both of you in different ways had addressed, it seemed to be a key question of the revolution, which is how should one be a Tunisian citizen after revolution? What are the possibilities of citizenship? What are the possibilities artistically? And also in terms of, as Hela said, what role does art play in making people more aware of their rights to public space and elsewhere? So I'd ask Hela a bit about, do you think that art in Dream City, in public space, has by moving into public space, has opened people's eyes to things? Has it increased debate? If you had a certain amount of resistance at the beginning, has it overcome it? So that would be one area. And then for Mohammed, I think, again, one of the interesting questions is if you think that the conditions of citizenship that you've described in Jemna have been made possible, what do you think that makes it possible there that makes it quite troubling and difficult in other areas, even in places where it's come close to it, like Kamur or Kerkeneh or other areas of Tunisia? So, Hela, would you take up the question of the effect of art in public space, whether it's enlarged it, whether it's simply entrenched divisions? I think that art has played a major role um, in uh, letting people be familiar uh, with the public space. Actually, just after the revolution, there, there were a lot of exhibitions, a lot of arts in the public uh, space. And in this time, like uh, two, three years after the revolution, people were still not uh, familiar with this form of arts, like dancing, theater in public space, or even painting, uh, etc. And I, I said people, but uh, it was also the government uh, that, uh, that was not uh, familiar with these ways of uh, expression, you know, and I remember the Habdaliya, what happened in Habdaliya, and this time it was a huge uh, exhibition and people came and uh, that uh, this art is against religion and uh, we are art as artists and believers, etc. And it set fire into the country, uh, you know, and government at this time, which was uh, composed by Nahda, by the religious party agreed with these people, you know, and uh, we were like completely 
as artists completely uh, failed, you know, by these people and by the government. But uh, fortunately, you know, after this, people get used to uh, to see artists in the streets, uh, artists dancing, painting, etc. So I think I was I was talking about living together. You know, um, I think as artists we are responsible also of making uh, things happen. You know, and creating a link between us, our art, but also uh, people people in public spaces. So have I, have I answered your question? No, no, that, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a good answer. And it leads you to think of many other possibilities that come out of it as well. But I think that's exactly what we, we were after. Mohammed, I don't know whether you want to think a bit about the question of citizenship in your contexts. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think the citizenship is a process and is not achieved, is continuing. And uh, the case of Gemini is very interesting because they demonstrate that uh, there there is uh, both a rapture with old regime and an essay to build a new regime at the local level. And this is possible in Jemna, and the success of Jemna is linked with um, which we could call the triple, the three traditions of Jemna. First of all, the art of negotiation. They have an art of negotiation with the government. There is recognition of the government and an art of negotiation of uh, all the ministers, all the government. And there is there a tradition of um, migration, an old tradition of migration. And this helps to link local and global, with national and global, of course. And uh, in Jemna, uh, you have also a tradition of knowledge, local knowledge. There are many intellectuals, many militants, which have great experience of politics. That's it. Very much. That's, I mean, it's, it's interesting looking at the different combinations and how that exists in different places. I think there are plenty of questions now coming from the floor. So I'd hand over to Michael to chair. He's been watching them all and then he will put them to you. But thank you both very much indeed. Thank you very much, Charles. Yes, we've got questions coming in. And just to, to let you know, if you would like to put a question to either one or both of our speakers tonight, you'll, you can type it into the Q&A bar that you'll see on your screen and it will come up. If you want to be identified, do put your name. If you prefer to be anonymous, that's absolutely fine. And I'll try and get through as many of the questions as I can before the end of our session. But the first question comes from Yusuf Sharif. Very nice to have you join us, Yusuf. He addresses his question to Mohammed, or as he very correctly, see Mohammed Karu. And Yusuf's question is, and I quote, we often mention the objectives of a revolution in quotation marks when describing the events of the last decade. But who defined these objectives? How can we establish objectives and demands which are organizational elements in a protest that has no formal organization? So, Mohammed. Very interesting question, from, and I'm not surprised because Yusuf is a, a clever man and a good friend who is following the current situation in Tunisia. Who defined the, the objective? This objective, there is no definition of objective. It was defined by the slogan of the revolution. 
There is not formal definition, but the slogan, one of the slogan, one of the main slogan of the religion was work, liberty, and dignity, national dignity. Of course, this is ambiguous as a slogan, but people deal with the ambiguous slogan during the revolutionary process. There is no institutional definition of objectives of the revolution. It's produced by uh, mass mobilization, produced by the history of mobilization, and is still continuing, of course. Thank you very much indeed for that. And this question goes to, to Hella, and this comes from Ezgi Bazaran. Good to see you, Ezgi. Thank you for joining us. And Ezgi was intrigued by one statement that you made, Hella, and she'd like you to elaborate more on it, saying... Can you elaborate more on the statement, one dictator was replaced by, I think you said, 11 million dictators? Say something more about that. I, I was intrigued by that, exactly what you meant by that as well. Yeah, actually, during Belani's regime, no one could say anything. You know, the law was low. And even if uh, we were waiting for more freedom or for more uh, freedom of, of um, speech, or uh, for more dignity, or for more things like this, you know, we, we stood quiet. And then, after the falling of the regime, everyone would ask things he would never ask during uh, Ben Ali's regime for himself, without dealing with the expectations of other people, you know, like, this is my street, you uh, are not allowed to stand in my street. This is my job. You're not allowed to, to come to my office. Or this is my company, you know, and I want the best for my company. I don't care about yours. So people um, were asking things for themselves without, without caring about other people. And this is why I said that um, actually this is a work in process because uh, this is about living together and dealing with uh, our expectations, but also with the expectations of other Tunisians. So it's a balance we have uh, to find to be citizens. And this is what at this time I felt like one dictator were, uh, was replaced by um, uh, 11, 11 million of dictators. It's a way of saying, actually. Thank you very much. That's a very interesting way of looking at it. I like that a lot. Our next question is looking at the, the disconnect, really, between protest, the politics of protest and formal politics. And it comes from Miriam Lawiti. And Miriam basically is saying that the youth are protesting its disappointment, but at the same time, they're not participating in elections, resulting in what she calls the pathetic results that we all suffer. Do either of you have any explanations for why that's the case? Maybe perhaps even say something about how that can be overcome, if at all possible. Either one of you will be welcome to try that. Yeah, it's very pertinent. It's very um, important issue. It's true that the young people don't participate to, um, to the election, but express their anger through um, demonstration. It's true. Till now, they... They did not participate, but we don't know in the future. They could participate next election. We don't know exactly where is the direction 
of the youth people. Thank you very much. Now, the next question actually comes from two people. We have a joint question from two, two good friends of the Middle East Centre, Larissa Chomiak and, and Bobby Parks. And they ask, when we think of the, protest, the thousands of protests and social movements annually, especially after 2018, in addition to such incredible experiences as Jemna, which you, you were referring to, Mohammed earlier, do you think that we can use the contentious experiences in Tunisia to think beyond the economic determinism that so many academics attach to the study of protests? In other words, what kind of pro- politics is behind these diverse and many movements? And they, they thank you for asking him. Thank you for your question. So really about this economic determinism, is it, can we move beyond that? Absolutely, absolutely. The case of Jemna and other demonstrations show us that we need to reflect beyond the the economic determinism because these movements are linked with collective identity, not with only the economic level as people think or as the intellectual think. The main issue is the collective identity of communities, communities of young people, community of Jimna, community of Al Kamur, and so on. We are now experiencing new ways of thinking and new ways of protesting, I think. Thank you. Next question comes from Robin Keeley. Thank you very much for joining us, Robin. I hope Robin won't mind me saying that Robin is a former British ambassador to Tunisia. And Robin's question is about the role of NGOs. And he asks, how do you see the role of NGOs developing, given that the sector was quite developed, albeit firmly controlled by the pouvoir before the revolution? A way of uninvolving and dynamizing society or a parallel government with other agendas? So the role of NGOs. Perhaps, perhaps Hella may be able to say something about this as well as Mohammed. Yes, actually it depends of NGOs. You know, for example, in the field of uh, human rights, NGOs were, were able to, to play a major role in uh, developing tools to improve human rights in Tunisia. It depends, actually. Uh, even even if I, I can I can think of other NGOs in com- economic fields or, or etc. It improves. It helped actually to to find some tools to to improve these fields. It hasn't replaced the role of uh, governments. I think it's a cooperation between government and NGOs, but also between NGOs and civil society. And I can't imagine a process without this uh, cooperation. Mohammed, did you want to add anything on that? Just an idea. We could say that uh, we have two kinds of uh, civil society in Tunisia and um, and abroad also, a formal civil society and an informal civil society. The formal civil society, attracted by NGOs, has played a major role during the first year transition. Now we are facing a new informal civil society, which is very different from the other. Let's say that the first one became bourgeois, Bourgeois civil society, I think, is very important to observe and to analyze now. And the demonstration in urban field 
and also in El Camur and in Jemna are, look, are linked with informal civil society, not formal civil society, except, except the role of UGTT, which is complex. Thank you very much. A question for Hella this time, and it's a, it's a question that um, I'm very interested to hear the answer to as well, from Dr. Karem Said, who is an anthropologist. And they ask, I'm so curious about hostility towards the art project in which your team replaced pictures of Ben Ali with those of ordinary citizens. What do you think this reveals about public media and the value of appearance in public space? Advertisements are so common on main streets and metro stations in Tunis. Do you think it was the more private placement of the portraits or something about their aesthetic styling that triggered the opposition? Very interesting question. <laughs> well, very interesting question. Thank you for asking. Actually, what triggered those reactions? We couldn't say at this time because we arrived as an artist like a Superman, you know. Yeah, we are replacing finally uh, Ben Ali's portraits by thousands of portraits of, uh, of Tunisian, unknown Tunisian people, you know. And on the contrary, people have, have not received this as an homage, but as an intrusion in their life, in their public space. And it, it was a lesson uh, at the end. It was for me a lesson of humility, uh, you know, because that teaches me that we have to deal with the public space as uh, the people in the street have to deal with artists. And before that, there were like a gap between artists and people in the street. Thank you very much. And following sort of on that about the expression, another question for you, Hella, is from an anonymous attendee. That's perfectly fine in terms of you can leave your name or not. And says, you said that freedom of speech has been the main change since the revolution. There seems to have been, however, a recent increase in government crackdowns on bloggers and online commentators. Is this something you are concerned about? Yes, of course, we are all concerned here in Tunisia about the violation of the right of our right to to speak uh, freely online or uh, through media, etc. And, you know, in French, we have, uh, I don't know how to translate, maybe Charles will translate. Chasser le naturel revient au galop. These are like reflex, you know, of the old regime. They are not familiar yet with freedom of speech. So there's, of course, crackdowns. But on the other hand, when it happened, people denounced the censorship and through media or network, etc. We all denounce uh, the censorship. Thank you. A question now from uh, a, a Tunisian colleague here at, at Oxford, a, a good friend and colleague of the centre, Mohamed um, Salah Omri. And Mohamed um, Salah welcomes you and thanks you for your succinct and suggestive interventions very much. Mohamed um, Salah's question is, both of you describe deep change at the level of practices of citizenship. Is there enough social debt to sustain this change or is it temporary? And for that, for both of you, who would like to try it first? Perhaps, Mohammed, would you like to try first? Yeah, yeah. Very good question, but really I have no uh, 
answer for this question. It's not easy. We don't know exactly if it's in death or it's uh, superficial. We have doubt it's not in death, but we have no sociological survival to know exactly the values of people, how they deal with power, if they have the same attitude, uh, the same representation of the power, or if this representation is changing now. We don't know exactly, but it's a very interesting question from a social scientist point of view, of course. Do you want to say something on that, Helen? Oh, no, that's it. I guess uh, you said everything. Right. Okay, thank you. And now somebody who would like to, to go back to one of the questions. This is from Venetia Porter, of course we know well. We're welcome, Venetia. Very nice of you to join us. And Venetia says, I wondered where we could go back to the question of why young people are not participating and hear Hella's thoughts because of her experiences with working with young people in the Medina. <laughs> your particular perspective from your experiences there, Hella. Yeah, hi, Venetia. Glad you're here. So, yes, I don't know where they are not participating, but uh, maybe if I go back and I can tell two words about this experience. Two or three or four years ago, I had a residency in uh, the heart of Tunis, uh, Medina of Tunis, with uh, five young people, and I followed them in their daily life. Young people who uh, were very representative of uh, the youth in Tunisia, like all of them were dreaming about legal migration, about leaving the country. They're disappointed by politics in Tunisia, very uh, improved also by the social and economic uh, situation in Tunisia. And it was very interesting to work with them and uh, to learn more about them because I felt like uh, there is a real gap between youth in Tunisia and our politician. And even, as uh, Mohammed said, and even a part of the civil society in, uh, in Tunisia. And even them, you know, they say that uh, they are completely... They, they feel alone, you know, in front of the regime, in front of, uh, of la bourgeoisie, in front of, uh, of the other people in Tunis. So, yes, this was a very interesting experience I had. And I wish that people could talk more with, uh, with the youth in Tunis and understand that expectation. By people, I mean politicians. Thank you. Moving back to the subject of the social movements, particularly that uh, Mohamed Karou was talking about, we have a question coming in from Spain, from Miguel Laramendi. Very good to see you, Miguel. Thank you for joining us. And Miguel asked, could you develop further the role of the UGTT and its relationship with these social movements? I think you did mention in passing there hadn't been a strong, particularly strong link, but perhaps you could, you could say a little bit more about that. Thank you. The role of uh, UGTT is very, um, labor union is very important, is crucial in the Tunisian history. And uh, if we um, observe the attitude of UGTT towards the social movements, they don't produce these social movements. They, they encourage the uh, social movement when 
they feel it's a legitimate demand of people. And the, the, the role is very complex of UGTT. The UGTT is the main organization, the main NGO in civil society. And the role of UGTT is between state and civil society. It's uh, at the same time an official organization and uh, also an organization which encourages informal civil society. And it's very interesting to study, I think. Thank you very much. Next question is from a Tunisian student who's actually in, in Oxford, Emen Zam. Thank you for the contribution. And Emen asks, is that while there has been praise to the Tunisian exceptionalism of, of Tunisia being an Arab anomaly, um, as described in the title of a book by Safwan al-Mazri, I know not everybody agrees with his perspective on things. Am I right to think, she asks, that there is an inherent paradox between Tunisia being an exception on one hand, yet doomed to a vicious circle of socioeconomic and political issues? And she says, I'm curious to know your thoughts on when we can start talking about the start of the end of the difficult situation back home. <laughs> so either one of you, I think, or perhaps Mohammed, you could start with that again. The Tunisian exceptionalism is the myth produced by media and some intellectuals. And now it's finished. It's over. Now it's the beginning of the difficulties on the politics in Tunisia and the economic and the global, uh, at the global levels. Thank you. Question coming in from Edward Oakden. And thanks for presenters. And Edward asks, insofar as it is possible to generalize, to what extent do you think that young people have a common vision of where they want the country to be in 10 years' time. And Edward is the present British ambassador in Tunisia and says hello to everybody. So basically, is there a common vision, do you think, or is it possible to have a common vision amongst people? And I think that could go to both of you. I think it's hard to talk about common vision, you know, because uh, everyone has its own vision for now. And the challenge is to have this uh, common vision to, to run the country and to set up the priorities. So, yes, as uh, Mohammed uh, said, uh, this is the beginning of the difficulties and uh, we cannot resolve these difficulties without having a common vision. And this is the most uh, difficult thing to, to have for the moment. I don't know, Mohammed, what do you think? You have a view, yeah. We have another aspect which is very important now is the lack of leadership in Tunisia. This is a big issue in, uh, in Tunisia today. Do you think, though, I one often wonder if I may, if my chip in myself, do you think the problem in Tunisia was it had too much leadership in the past under Bourguiba and Ben Ali? Is that part of the problem? If we compare the history of Tunisia with other countries, there was no much uh, leadership. There was a lack of leadership after Bourguiba. With Ben Ali, there is no leadership. And also today, we have no leadership. I, I mean national leadership. National leadership. There is no person who is able to uh, express this leadership in the country today. Thank you. Actually, it's, it, sorry. This is a difference between uh, leadership and dictatorship during ben Ali, with Ben Ali and also Bourguiba who were into like a dictatorship or one person who decides for all. And this is not 
leadership, you know. This is not the leadership we want for our country now after the revolution. And of course, there's a lack of, uh, of leadership and there is no common vision. But maybe if politicians meet together and set up uh, priorities, maybe at this time we could go forward with the country. Thank you very much. We have time, I think, for just one more question, unfortunately. I apologize to those who weren't able to ask their question. This question comes from Paul Arts and it's towards Mohammed. And he again wanted to come back on something that you said, describing Gemini as maybe the only success of a revolution. Could you say something a little bit more about that, he asked? Yeah. Till now, it's the only success. But we are not sure if there will be an agreement between the government and Gemini. The current government has no time for agreement, no time for a new PC in the country. So we don't know what will be the future of Jemna. Thank you very much. So we're still waiting for the future, which seems like maybe a, an appropriate note to end things on. But thank you very much to both of you. I'll hand back to, back to Charles and then Charles can hand back to me. Over to you, Charles. Well, thank you, Michael. And, and thank you, really. I just want to thank both of you very much, as well as all those who put questions to you but really for giving us such a, a wonderful series of insights into the dilemmas facing Tunisians, Tunisian citizens, and indeed Tunisian leadership. And you can see why we were justified in calling this unfinished revolutions, because clearly there are, like in all revolutions, there are many processes at work. And some people think they've achieved a success, and other people clearly say there's too much to be done yet to claim success. But I think you both managed to show in different but interestingly complementary ways the successes, but also the, the challenges faced by many in Tunisia on all sorts of levels. And the hope is that some of the recognition of those challenges will come together and not be seen as playing for a zero-sum game in Tunisia itself. But that's part of the, the challenge of citizenship itself, which I think you both illuminated. So uh, Hela and Mohammed, thank you so much indeed for your contributions this evening, really outstanding. And we look forward to the exhibition at the British Museum, Hela, and we look forward to uh, the appearance of Jemna, so looking forward to that very much indeed. And I also want to thank Michael and the Middle East Centre at St Anthony's for hosting it this evening, and also for the unseen person who has made all this possible, Stacey Churcher, who really we want to thank for having set everything up so brilliantly and making it all work so smoothly. Michael, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Charles. And thank you, Stacey, for running and setting all of this up. And thank you very much to Charles and the British Tunisian Society for making this possible. It's been wonderful to work in partnership and it's a great organisation. I can remember when joint organisations between Britain and Tunisia were rather different arrangements if we were to go back more than 10 years. And it's wonderful to have that cooperation. And, and, and Charles and the other members have been wonderful work there. Thank you, Charles. And thank you again, Mohammed and Helen. Thank you for coming and spending time and coming in from Tunisia. And we wish you well. And thank you very much for this session. So that ends it for this week. And apologies again for those of you who asked questions weren't able to put them. Please do join us next week, the seventh in the series, when we'll be doing a retrospective on the role of social media 10 years on from the Arab uprisings. But for that, a very good evening to you. Have a wonderful weekend, and we look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you very much indeed.